Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. What would it look like if the church were unleashed? What would it look like? What would it look like if the church were unleashed? Um, I can tell you, I stand here before you today as somebody who knows what the power of being unleashed is. Uh, years ago, back when I was really a runner still, um, I was preparing and training for a marathon and I uh, went out for one of my medium runs one, one Saturday afternoon. It was a beautiful day and I was out there just plugging along, you know, doing my best. I was on my way back, so I'd already run a pretty good distance. And all of a sudden, as I'm running down this, and just to give you a little context here, um, it's, uh, it's a, a five-lane road, but it's like, you know, 35, 45 miles an hour, two lanes here, center turn lane, two lanes on this side, no, like, sidewalk, no shoulder, anything like that. And where I'm from uh, was in Beaufort County, North Carolina. People think it's a game to try to hit as many people on the road. They're like, you're trying to get healthy. I'm running you down. You know, that's what they, they kind of think. At least that's what it seems like. And so I was running along and um, I'm running, you know, the way I'm supposed to facing traffic on that, you know, left hand side of the road. And as I'm running, you know, um, I'm feeling a little bit tired. And all of a sudden I hear behind me. I'm like, something is coming up behind me really quick. And all of a sudden, I feel on my calf muscle, which you see these massive rocks of calf that you got here. Um, I, f- I feel like the breath of this animal down here on my calf. And so I'm like starting to get panic mode a little bit, picking up my pace a little bit. And I decide to, you know, get this thing off of me. I'm just going to like during my stride, just whap, and I kick it underneath the jaw, kick it underneath the jaw. I then look back and see it's a 75 to 85 pound pit bull, pure muscle. And so he was off his leash and I was off my leash at that point. I'm like, and I mean, I'm picking it up. I'm not like a super fast distance runner, but that day I was like Olympic trials. You know, I'm like, if they'd have seen me, they'd have thought, man, this guy's got some skills. We're going to put him in the Olympics. And so I'm running and like, and he's not giving up. He's got more cardiovascular strength than I've got. And so he's just running along. He's on four legs too. And he was resting. He's like, Ooh, skinny chicken legs. Let me go get those. And so we're running and I'm trying to get this thing. I'm like trying to outrun this thing. And mind you, I said, no shoulder. I mean, it's just like right here. Cars are coming at me. And so y'all forgive me. I don't know if this is 2023 and I don't know if it's politically correct to say this, but I started thinking, I'm thinking quick, right? You know, law of self-preservation. I start stepping out into traffic a little bit, hoping he'll follow me. And then I step back, hoping that somebody will hit him. I love animals too, y'all. Don't come after me. Don't come after me. I love animals too, but I love me more than I love animals, especially a pit bull trying to chew my leg. And so I'm like trying to step out. And then, no, get this, then people getting over. I ran for an hour and a half and wasn't nobody getting over for Bobby. But when Mr. Killer Attack Pitbull gets in the road, the old people, oh, slow down, get over, leave room. People need Jesus, y'all. But I'll tell you another time that I really learned about being unleashed. And this might sound silly to you, but uh, when I was a kid, my parents sometimes, going to eat was a treat. My kids think that going out to eat is just what you do. You know, it's just what you do. We breathe, we go out to eat. And like, I mean, McDonald's was a treat. 
And I, maybe it's cause we weren't all that rich, but whatever. I was like, and so when it was big time, we would go to a seafood restaurant named Cliff's in Chocowinity, North Carolina. Most of y'all can't say Chocowinity, much less know where it's at. But Chocowinity, or we would go to, drum roll please, Golden Corral. We would go to Golden Corral, and I mean, I'm talking about pre-buffet Golden Corral. This is, I'm showing my age here, back in the 1900s. You know, it's like back then. But we would go and we would order steak, right? Steak. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm, as a little kid, I'm watching and I'm like, I'm looking at the steak and the steak looks good. And then my parents would order me the steak. I was pretty young. You know, once I started eating steak and, you know, fairly young, they gave it to me. So I'm saying they're, they're good to me. They put the steak down and I'm like, I'm like, this ain't that good. What's the big deal about steak? I've been hearing about steak. Fast forward several years later, I find out you can get steak less cooked than a burnt tire. You can. My, my parents, like, I mean, if you like, like my parents do, if you like, well, 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 well done. If you like that, then that's fine. But I did not like it. And so I started getting it less well done, less well done. So now I'm like, you know, medium rare down to even rare. And I'll tell you what, I love steak. And so once I finally figured out what steak really was, I was unleashed, y'all. I was set free. I was like, woo. You know, it's like amazing, you know, and I, I just figured out. And so I ask you to think about, is there ever been a time when you felt unleashed or you wondered what it would be like to be unleashed? And I want you to specifically think about in your faith. Have you been unleashed in your faith? What would it look like in the world if the church was unleashed? And if I'm going to go ahead and spill the beans and sort of give a spoiler here, we are the church. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized into Christ, then you are the church. It's not just an organization. It's individuals that come together that make up the church. And so if we are unleashed in our faith, what would the world look like? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you this. If you want to know what it looks like to see the church unleashed, you go to the book of Acts. You go to the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to be studying for quite a while over these next several weeks. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And today, specifically, we're spending most of our time in chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible and you want to follow along, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. The scripture will be on the screen. I will tell you, we'll be moving around within the chapter. And so uh, it'll be really easy to follow along the screen. But please do follow along in the, in the paper Bible on your phone if you'd like. Acts chapter 1. But we're going to spend time in Acts over the next several weeks, and we're going to be digging, and we're going to be praying, and I hope and pray we're going to be living and dreaming of what it looks like if we become unleashed, more like the, the church in the book of Acts. That's what we want to do. Because I don't know about y'all, but I want to see the kingdom of God unleashed. I do. I want to see the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the church. I want to see the kingdom of God unleashed. But before I get into that, can I point out just a couple of really, really important things? This is, um, I want you to stick with me. You might be tempted to kind of zone out or doze off, but I want you to, everybody, everybody, wake up. Wake up. Because this is so important. This is some groundwork that I believe we got to do. There's a couple of things when we study the Bible, and for spe specifically for us here in the book of Acts, a couple of good things that we need to program into our brain if we don't have it yet. The first one is this, context. Context. 
We need to pay attention to context. One of my favorite Bible college professors way back when told me this. He said, the first three rules of studying the Bible are just like the first three rules of real estate. What are the first three rules of real estate? Location, location. Oh, yeah, y'all are with me. Y'all are with me. Guess what they are for Bible study? Context, context, context. That's exactly right. The context to what the Bible says is so important because there are so many false teachings and so many crazy ideas where people take a verse of Scripture and they pluck it out and they run away as far as they can from the scripture so that they can get a system of beliefs based on what they want it to be. So many people don't search for what God says, but they search for validation for themselves. And we cannot do that to God's word because he is God. The second thing we want to understand is this. The second thing is this, looking deeper. And this may sound like a dove thing, but do we always look deeper when we think we're looking deeper? Man, I'm going to have to call us out here. Um, how many times have you personally, if you're married especially, been guilty of saying, I can't find X, Y, Z. I've looked all over for it. And then your wife comes in 0.2 seconds and finds it. You can admit it. It's all right. We can admit that. We can, we can do it. But that's the way a lot of us treat scripture, men and women. We don't always look deeper. What we do is we say, we see someone who we think is up on this pedestal and they say, trust me, I've looked deeper and I'll bring it out for you. And if they're being good and faithful, that's great. But many times people are not good and faithful. Sometimes just out of ignorance, they don't know better, but sometimes with malicious intent. And so you and I, and I say this and I'll say it one more time. Don't simply take my word for it. You go to scripture. And a good rule of thumb is if somebody claims to be teaching God's word and they say, just take my word for it or something like that, you need to run. You need to run. If they say, oh, don't question me. Look at God's word. Look at God's word and dig in deeper. Don't simply glaze over. Don't, um, don't go look through the lens of another person's teaching. You know, you can learn from other people. I mean, that's what we're hopefully doing today, but we look deeper at God's word. As we said, many false teachings and beliefs that cause great confusion come from lack of context and simply glazing over reading through scripture and not looking at it with fresh eyes. One of the big blessings that I had from not preaching for the majority of the book of July, book of July, I tell you, I'm ready to preach y'all. From the month of July was that I really, even though I've taught this book so many times in, in different Bible studies and in sermons, I just went back and tried to as best I could to just, just take the scales off and really look with fresh eyes at everything that we're going to be looking at and studying. And so I want us to do this to start us off. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, one of the things you notice is that this chapter covers basically a period of 50 days. And if we're going to get really specific, the bulk of it is just a 10-day period. But it's 10 days, and I want to stress that. It's a period of time, not just a simply a 24-hour period. And you may think, why do you say that? Because I think a lot of times we as individuals can read Acts chapter 1 and 2 like they happen in about maybe 24 hours. 
And that leads to a little bit of confusion. And so we notice that from the day uh, the, the Passover when Jesus was crucified to the day of Pentecost was 50 days. At day 40, he ascended up into heaven and left 10 more days before the day of Pentecost. And so when we read chapters 1 and 2, we need to realize that they happen in different settings, even though it's all sort of laid out here close together. And a lot of times people look at it and they think, you know, well, verse 12 through 14, it, it seems to be the group of the 11 apostles that were left. We know if, you, if you've been around the church a little bit, you know what happened to Judas. If you don't, you can go back and read in, in the Gospels, and it even alludes to it here in this chapter. But in chapter, uh, verses 12 through 14, it's a group of 11 plus a, a handful of others, a large handful of others. Jesus' mother, his brothers and sisters, maybe, you know, and some of the women that were following. So it's a, a relatively small group of people. And then in verses 15 through 16, it refers to a gathering of 120 and so we got to understand that these weren't all the same exact few moments. It wasn't just one large group. There was a moment when there was 11 plus a few. And then there was actually a moment where it was probably just the 11 that we look at in chapter one. And then there was a moment of 120. And we look through these. And, and don't lose me. Don't lose me. I've got a method to my madness here. In Acts chapter 2, it's often assumed that the same 120 as mentioned in chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, or 26, is the group that's gathered there. But in verse 1, one of the things it clearly says is they were all together in one house. I don't know many homes that can hold 120, and so most likely it was not the large group of 120 people that were at that point disciples and believers in Jesus. And then we're told that the 12 were the ones who stood and preached in chapter 2, verse 14. Now back up with me, uh, chapter 15 of, excuse me, I am, I've got a lot to say, y'all. I've been off, preach, off from preaching for a month. Chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, as we mentioned, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those arrested, who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Then fast forward to verse 21. So one of the men who have, been accompanied, who have accompanied us during all that time, the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two have been chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, here's another reason why context and looking at the overall picture of Scripture and paying attention and digging deeper is important. Because the qualification for an apostle was someone who had been there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Did you catch that? The qualification for someone to be an apostle was someone who had been there from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And you may be thinking, why is this important? Because believe it or not, there were people early on in the church who were not one of the 11 or then the new 12. Or then if you want to get technical, as Paul joins the group 13, these people would claim to be apostles. 
And believe it or not, there are still people today that claim to be apostles. But what we have to realize is that it had to be somebody that was there from the beginning. And you may be saying, oh, 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 but what about Paul? Well, Paul got a crash course from Jesus directly in Arabia for quite a long time. And so if Jesus comes and gives you all the low down details and says you're an apostle and he sends you out, I think you're okay, right? So, but what we see is when they were choosing the new apostle, it had to be somebody who was there from the beginning. And you may be saying, why is that important? Because we can't claim to be something that we cannot be. An apostle was somebody who had been there through the ministry of Jesus. And here's something we've got to learn. Every Christian should be a disciple, but only a few were apostles. Only a few were apostles. So why does that matter, though? Why are you, why are you splitting hairs, Bobby? Here's why. It comes into importance in a lot of areas, but here's just a couple of note is that a lot of times with the giving of the miraculous gifts like tongues and healing and prophecy, we see in scripture here, especially in the book of Acts, that those gifts are given by the laying on of the apostles hands in Acts chapter eight. Now I'm spoiling a little bit because we're going to get to Acts chapter eight much later on. But in Acts chapter eight, Philip was one of the seven. Sometimes we call him deacons. You know, he was one of the preachers that went out. He goes and he preaches the gospel to Samaria, which is also important. We'll get to that much later on too as well. Or not much later, but a little bit later on. He goes and he preaches the gospel and it says that almost everybody was baptized. But it says when it came to the giving of the miraculous gifts, they had to send down from Jerusalem for Peter and John, the apostles, to come and lay hands on them to give them the miraculous gifts. So the apostles had to give the miraculous gifts, and they sent for Peter and John. It says that the sorcerer Simon saw the gifts were given by the laying on the apostles' hand. And why is this important? Why? 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 Here's why. Because a lot of damage has been done in the kingdom of God of people claiming to be apostles and claiming to have gifts that they probably don't have. You think about televangelists that are out there that bring a lot of shame to the name of Christ because they like to act like they've got these special powers and they dupe people out of their money and they set people up for failure. And we see that it causes so much heartache and brings reproach on the name of Christ. And secondly, here's another thing. Reading these different sections as, as one concurrent event can lead to misunderstanding and improper assumptions. Could all of the 120 that were present in Acts chapter 1 have been there and, and also uh, spoken in tongues on the day of Pentecost? They could. It's possible. But does it say that they were for sure and that they did? No, it doesn't. And so here's what my point is. And here's where I want to really challenge you. And for some of this, this might bother you. This might really upset you. But I want you to look at it with fresh eyes as much as you can. We have to be careful about building theological belief systems all willy-nilly. When the scripture says something, it says something. If it doesn't say something, we can't build a big system of beliefs on something the scripture does not say simply because somebody who seems to have authority says, this is really what the deal is. We've got to be true to God's word. We've got to be true to God's word. We cannot build our theological system so willy-nilly. A lot of people carry the idea that the gift of tongues was a gift that everyone had. 
but you cannot make that staunchly from the argument in, in Acts chapter 2 from that passage, and you certainly can't make it from 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 that everybody had that gift. Actually, it seems like it was some that very few had, and Paul said, I'd rather speak in, in five, unintelli- or five intelligible words than a thousand tongues. So here's why I say all this. And you might be saying, man, you've already lost me. But we want to be good stewards of God's word. Amen? Amen? We want to. We want to study and dig down deep. And so let's commit to good study habits and reading in context. Because in Acts, here's why it's so vitally important. We find the blueprint of the beginning of the church and this might sound a little weird to you, but listen closely. Everybody, if, you, if I lost you, tune back in. In the book of Acts, we find the only instance of people becoming Christians in the entire Bible. We do. It's the only instance in the book. Of, not even in the Gospels, because Gospels lead up to Jesus' resurrection, but it doesn't lead up to the first Gospel message as we find in the book of Acts. Everybody that's saved uh, or it alludes to being saved prior to the book of Acts is under the old covenant. It's under the old covenant. So the only instance of people becoming Christians is we find in the book of Acts. And so let's dig in and let's do our part so the kingdom of God here at Movement can be unleashed. Have you ever seen a false start at a race? You ever watched a race, a, a, a foot race, or maybe even a swim meet? I just saw a, a recap of the Olympics many years ago now when Michael Phelps was at his prime. And man, you know, it's just amazing. And then I saw another video uh, about a guy who false started. And man, he was just dejected. And it messes everybody up, right? If, if somebody false starts, it's like usually other people will go after. And so it just, it, everybody's all tense and they just all messed up. And it, it's, a, it's a bad thing when somebody false starts. But you know what's really worse? You know what's really worse? A never start. Or a start and stop. Those things actually, I believe, are worse than a false start because at least a false start person is just rip raring and ready to go, right? You know, they're ready to go. So a false start, or excuse me, a, a never start or a start and a stop are much worse. And so here's what I want us to think about for the remainder of our time together this morning. Many Christians and believers are like runners that never go anywhere once the gun goes off. A lot of times we'll get the t-shirt, we'll get the swag, but we don't run. You know, I really like t-shirts, and a lot of times that was a motivation for me to go run races. <laughs> but it wouldn't be honest if I went and got the t-shirt the night before and then never ran the race, right? Because I'm claiming to be a part of the race. A lot of people treat baptism like it's a finish line. Like it's a finish line. And like once you're baptized, all right, I'm good. I'm, I'm relaxed. I'm in Jesus now. You know, I'm cut. My sins are forgiven. I, I've got the Holy Spirit, so I'm just going to do it. No, that's the beginning of the race, right? Because what is baptism? What does it say that baptism is in Romans chapter 6? It's a death to our old life. We're buried, and then we're raised up to walk in a new life, right? You know, we, we, we raise up and we're a new baby in Christ. And then it's time for us to grow, right? We, you know, a lot of times we're like, we think we're like Benjamin Button. Y'all remember that really bad movie years ago? You know, it's like, I, I learned about Jesus. I'm an old person. And then I go back to being a little baby. <laughs> Feed me. But we've got to get started. We've got to get going once we're baptized into Christ. And so here's what I want you to think about. 
How are you running your race? How are you running your race? Are you unleashed? You know, I think a lot of times our faith can be described like this. Oh, man. Ooh, hey, is that Stephen? Well, gosh, I should have thought twice before I did that. I zoomed in on Stephen. Okay, I'll go over here. But a lot of times our faith can be described like this. We feel like once we become a Christian that now, all right, I want my binoculars because I'm on a sightseeing tour. I want to learn all these stories. And I just looked at a spotlight and I thought Jesus came um, whew, with binoculars. That was bad. But I want to learn all the stories and I want to you know, be encouraged and I want to all the, hit all the highlights. And a lot of times we treat our faith like that. We treat it like we get binoculars when we become a Christian. And I'm telling you, that's not exactly what God intended. Acts chapter one, verse one. So we're going back to the beginning of Acts chapter one. It says this in the first book, O Theophilus. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Important context note, he's talking to the 11 at this point. He's talking to the 11. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that might seem inconsequential, but I want us to pause there for a second because here's why that's important. Because the apostles, a lot of times, you ever get caught in, in your mind putting the apostles up on this, this pedestal? You know, I mean, yes, they had an extra special position. They were given special powers and they were, you know, would speak. And when they spoke, it was like Jesus was speaking through them. So, yes, they are special. But you know what? They were a lot like us. They were a lot like us. And one of the first things when Jesus is talking about, you know, I, I'm going to go and, and you got to go and you got to spread the gospel and then I'm going to come back. They're like, oh, is this the time? Is this the time when Israel's going to be restored? They were worried about Israel's political power. They were tired of being under the thumb of the Romans. But you know what? It wasn't even as big and grandiose as that. You know what they were really more concerned about, I would think? They were more concerned about their position and their power because what did they expect Jesus to be? They expected him to be more of an earthly king and that they would then be governors and rulers. And you remember they'd argued about who was going to be the greatest. And, you know, Peter and John's mom said, oh, you know, can one of my boys sit at your right hand, your left hand when you come into your kingdom? Just like us, they were worried about who? Themselves. And instead of being focused on the mission at hand, they were more worried about themselves and, and looking at themselves and, and getting comfortable and getting their rewards. You know, they'd given a lot up in three and a half years, but they're finally, is this when we're going to receive what we deserve? Are we looking or are we going? Are we looking or are we going? You know, we think about it. We always want to have the binoculars, but really the better description of our faith, or at least the way it should be, is a compass. 
Instead of getting a pair of binoculars where we can go sightseeing and kind of take it easy, I hope that we'd understand that our faith needs to look more like a compass than it does binoculars. Because we need to be seeking and finding the path, and while we were on that path, we need to be looking and seeking and finding anybody else who can come along and name Jesus as Lord and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That should be our purpose. Instead of binoculars, we need a compass. And many of us struggle with focusing on uh, what being a part of the kingdom brings us. And it's okay to relish being a child of God. That, that's what you should do. But sometimes our greater focus comes on what we receive other than our salvation from being a part of the kingdom of God. That's why there's a lot of teachers and preachers on TV and that are so popular because what they do is they don't talk so much about our salvation and then our mission of spreading the joy and the good news of salvation. They focus on being blessed and highly favored. And I don't remember Jesus live, talking and preaching about a life that was going to be easy. He talked about being blessed, but it also said that he had no place to what? Lay his head. And the apostle Paul prayed and preached and wrote from prison. And he said, I have become, learned to be content in every situation. You know, and he prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, and it was not. It is not a life of being blessed and highly favored, at least in a worldly sense, but yes, yes, in a spiritual sense. So why do we always tend to feel like our face should be described as binoculars rather than a compass? What does it look like for you? It's easy to become focused on our own salvation and then what we can gain. We easily get stuck and not care about the salvation of others. And what's Jesus' reply when they ask that question in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1? Look at verse 7. I think he's saying the same thing sort of to us. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. He tells the apostles, he said, you don't need to worry about when I'm coming back and when the, all this stuff's going to happen. You know, you need to worry about going and being on mission. You need to be going and telling people, the people that you like, the people that you love, the people that you don't like, the people that look different than you, the people that talk different than you, that act different than you, not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, but Samaria. That's their response. And to the entire ends of the earth, all these people need to go. He's talking to the apostles first and foremost, but once we, everybody wake up. Once we obey the apostles teaching, we have the same mandate that they had to go, the same commission, the same command. Jesus commanded us to share the gospel in our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of our world. But if you need more proof that the apostles are like us, look at verse 9, beginning there. It says, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, 
Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And men, he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Instead of just looking like with binoculars. Now, okay, granted, he did say for a little while you're going to go and you're going to sit. But he still had stuff for them to accomplish while they were waiting, right? And then once the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and they preached the gospel message, then they were supposed to go. But from day one, they're so in awe of looking up that that's all they want to do. And there's a lot of times the church is just like that. We want to worry about when Jesus is coming back rather than living for Jesus right here and right now. And how many people aren't going to be ready for Jesus to come back because the church doesn't live like Jesus is coming back. Instead of just gazing up into heaven spiritually and emotionally and physically, why not get our compass out and be going to where he's called us to go? Let's keep going. They were stuck. They still had some time before the, they were really supposed to go full force, but he had a job for them to do, and we already alluded to that a little bit. Choosing a new apostle. You see, the Christian life is described as a race or it's often allegorized as a quest or a journey. Yet we wrestle with viewing it as a sightseeing tour or a museum. You know, that's the best way to symbolize these binoculars that we sometimes want to carry around. We want to see all the good things, right, in our faith. We want to view all the monuments. Man, look at all these faithful people that have come before. And honestly, a lot of times we just want to enjoy the air-conditioned tram of the church as we're transported from high point to high point and highlight to highlight. Living my Christian life. Looking up, waiting for Him to come back. Or better yet, oftentimes we want to treat it like a 4D IMAX cushion seat theater that gives us the illusion of being in the race or on the journey, but yet we don't really start running. We can't fall into that trap. Because what did Jesus command us to do before he went up into heaven? Go. He said, go. So instead of binoculars, maybe our symbol needs to be a compass. You know, it needs to be a compass. So we're going and we're searching because we've got an adventure to go on. We've got a journey to take, people to find, challenges to overcome. And, you know, we read earlier about the choosing of Judas and his replacement, or Judas's replacement. And this was one of the first challenges that they were to overcome for the apostles. So take note as we read. I want you to see if you see any connections with the gospels. This is just, I won't charge you extra for this, but look at verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Ding, ding, ding. There's the first little note. All right. Store that away in case you're not familiar with it. Near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. I'm sure he was quick to introduce himself that way. Judas, son of James, son of James. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with all the women and the mother, or excuse me, with the women and the mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You know, I told you to take note of gospel correlations here. After Jesus's ascension at the place where they abandoned him when he was arrested, that was called the what? Mount of Olives, or Olivet Mountain. 
So the last place that they were with Jesus before he was taken to the cross, the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, that's where he departs from them. And that's where they head back to an upper room. Now, it may not be the upper room, but there's a good chance it was the upper room where they shared the meal that night before he was what? Arrested in the Mount of Olives, where they are just now leaving from and going back into Jerusalem. I, I say that because God will, when you let him down, when you hurt him, he'll restore you in ways that help you see, hey, I'm still here for you. Just like when Peter denied him, you know, he denied him three times when he reinstated him that morning on the beach. He asked him three times, what? Do you love me? Go. Do you love me? And he does. So Jesus is, I believe, sort of maybe sort of teaching them this idea of like, look, I'm still not done with you yet. I've got a plan for you. And they go back and what does it say? They all together devoted themselves to what? Prayer. What was the thing that Jesus was begging them to do in the garden that night, the same place that they just left? Pray with him. Just one hour. One hour, could you pray with me? And so now they go back, now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they start praying, they start praying. And where they were in the garden that night, it was a rest. He asked them to pray, and now what are they doing? They're praying. And here's what I want you to understand. Big moves of God are always preceded by prayer. Big moves of God are always preceded by prayer. Before Jesus went to the cross, what did he do? Prayed and he asked them to pray with him. Before they go and choose the next apostle, what do they spend time doing? Praying. These big moves of God are always preceded by prayer. And so I ask you, are you looking for God to do something? Or are you seeking for God to do something? Are you seeking his leading? Are you seeking to be involved in something? It says that they were devoting themselves to prayer. In the Greek there, it carries the idea of to give oneself to continually. They were continually giving themselves to prayer as a group before they chose the next apostle. And so I want to ask you, does this describe your prayer life? Your prayer life in regards to seeking God's guidance for kingdom things? Are you praying continually, God, help me to see how you can use me as I go on this journey to be part of your kingdom, to be unleashed, to go where you've called me to go? Are you devoted to praying for God's kingdom and movement to be unleashed? I, I'm begging you, I am, to use an old word, beseeching you to be praying for God's movement through his kingdom here at Movement to be unleashed, and it has to start with each and every one of us. So are you watching, or are you going? I want you to commit today, if you're willing, to not be a spectator anymore. To not be a spectator anymore. I've got up here in this basket... I've got a bunch of little tiny compasses. These are tied together. <laughs> but I want to encourage you to come up here, and I'm going to ask you to take one of these. You can maybe put it on your gear shift or on your mirror or wherever you're going to see it every day. If you want to tie it to your keychain, you can do that. But I want you to take one of these and say, God, I want to be reminded that I'm not just to be a spectator. I'm to be going. I'm on a mission. And are you willing to follow where he leads? Where you go, I'll go. 
Where you stay, I'll stay. Are you ready and willing to be devoted to prayer so that you can be ready for God's leading? If the kingdom is going to be unleashed, it's got to start with you and it's got to start with me. As we get ready to sing this last song, I want you to consider it's not somebody else's job to go. It's my job. Yes, yeah, theirs too, but they can't go in my place. It's my job to go where God is leading. As I go through my day at work, as I go through my day at school, as I spend time with my family at home, as I go shopping, as I do this, as I do that, am I going on God's mission? Because then and only then can the church be unleashed. If you need to come to Jesus today, we'd love to share with you the gospel. We'd love to baptize you into Christ. But today, if you also need to say, I've been that, I've done that, I've been there, but I have not been going, I want to challenge you today to commit to going. Come grab one of these compasses to remind you, I've got a mission. I've got somewhere I'm going for my king and his kingdom. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.